Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Sabat Han, Sabat Han, which is, of course, Nepali for Achtung, Achtung. God, I think you did yes, that really finally well. finally gone Gurkha. I think, well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe we're going to get some Gurkhas calling and complain now. <laughs> <laughs> that's a um, difficult one. That's, a, finally, that's tricky. That is tricky. We've finally gone Gurkha. <laughs> Joanna Lumley will approve. Yes, hey, well, I approve. How, I think that's great. How stupid was Gordon Brown to take on lovely old wrinkly tiny old Gurkhas and Joanna Lumley? Do you remember that? Yeah, As I do. political scandals go, I I am the greatest politician the country's ever seen. I'm going to take on the world's most glamorous woman and her tiny little chums. I mean, what, what, <laughs> what, what an idiot! Anyway, um, oh, uh, but then he wrote. Uh, now, do you remember he now, then published a book on heroes and, and, and sort of war stories? What? Obviously, he never yeah, researched or wrote it, but I mean, you know. Well, yeah. Sold nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah, because anyway, anyway, why are we? Why have we gone Gurkha, which is like going Commander, but with a bigger dagger? Well, um, well, <laughs> much bigger dagger. Uh, because a much more impressive much, much dagger. bigger dagger. <laughs> We're giving thanks to Lieutenant Stu Taylor of Seventy Gurkha Field Squadron. Lieutenant um, uh, Taylor sent us this enormously gratifying email this week. Um, um, well, we, this came through completely stoked uh, to get this. Loving the podcast, please keep up the excellent work. As a serving officer in the Queen's Gurkha Engineers, I've been raving about it to anyone who'll listen. I was recently deployed to lead the sappers in the conversion of the Excel Centre to NHS Nightingale, and I particularly enjoyed listening to Zeno's The Cauldron each night whilst writing my sit rep. How about that? Hey, bingo. Yeah, that's right. Regimental pride compels me to ask for a feature on the contribution of Nepal and the roles of the 40 or so Gurkha battalions during World War II. I do not think it is widely known just how much of a friend to us Nepal was during the war, despite never having been part of the British Empire. This included massively increasing the number of Gurkha battalions in existence and placing the entire armed forces of Nepal at the disposal of the UK. Please keep staying safe and building up my World War II pub quiz knowledge for when we finally emerge from Stalag Luft Corona. Stu, Lieutenant S.C. Taylor, Royal Engineers, L Troop Commander, 70 Gurkha Field Strong, 36 Engineer Regiment and the Queen's Gurkha Engineers. How about that? Well, do you know what? 36 Engineer Regiment were the people who sponsored me to go out to Helmand back in 2008. Really? Yeah, and the commanding officer then was a great mate of mine called Dickie Wardlaw, who's now a Lieutenant General. So I've now got a mate who is a three-star general, which just makes me feel really old. But um, incredible. Yeah, so I went out there with the 36 Engineer Regiment. Really? 
Uh, yeah, they sponsored me to go out and you know hung out with them and fantastic, amazing. Ec- so yeah, so I, I, that's that's really it's really nice to hear from him. Yeah, brilliant. So thanks, Stu. Yeah, I mean we, yeah. I mean the Gurkhas, the Gurkhas is probably um, uh, I don't know that that's half a dozen podcasts just to scratch the surface, isn't it? I mean yeah. Gurkhas all yeah, Gurkhas yeah. all over Burma. There are there are Gurkhas uh, in the admin box. Am I right in thinking that there are, aren't there? I mean, it's basically yeah, well, there's right basically right, Gurkhas yeah. everywhere. So the way the way the Indian Army is organised, yeah. So the way the Indian Arm, Army is organised is in an infantry division, you have your infantry, infantry brigades, and each brigade is split th- into three battalions: one British, one Gurkha, one Indian. So you have you have the West Yorkshires with the second eighth Gurkhas and the first third. I don't know Punjab, but. But but yes. but, but, but they themselves, the Indian battalions, are divided up into companies of each ethnic group, aren't they? So that so that you don't get you yes. don't get an over. I mean, it's, and it's sort of a leftover from the from the uh, the great, the Indian mutiny or whatever 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 you yes. call it now, the Great Rebellion. Um, the, the, so that so that they're evenly matched ethnically, so you don't have a preponderance of any one group in the in that battalion. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly, exactly. But they're but they're. Um, I mean, you know, their, their their contribution is absolutely enormous. I mean, to the North Africa campaign. I mean, you know, the Western Desert Fort is largely um, a, a, a colonial force, and you know, the, the Indian Division, the Fourth Indian Division, famously, it's one of the you know one of the greatest divisions ever. Um, uh, they then fight fight up through um, Italy as well, all the way through the Italian campaign, um, and of course throughout the battles in Southeast Asia. So, you know, they they make an absolutely massive contribution. Um, I mean, forty, but and it's interesting because because what happens is these recruiters would go into 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 Nepal and recruit, and you know, on paper they are absolutely volunteers. Um, it's very interesting. There was a book book about um, about injury in the war by um, Yasmin Khan a few years ago, which was really interesting. Um, I think the Raj at War, I think it was called, and it was a really really good book. It was fascinating, but you know, she was down on it because she said, you know, you can't really say that they were they were. Um, uh, volunteers because there was so much peer pressure and you know strong arm tactics and all the rest of it but it was i always slightly felt that yasmin was sort of slightly putting 21st century sensibilities onto something that was you know 70 odd years 80 years ago and well 21st century western, se- my, western my impression is as well i mean nepal's a completely different culture too indeed yeah. and of course there were lots of sort of Gurkha, mothers of gurkhas who didn't want their little moppets going off to off to war but you got a very, very strong impression that there weren't that many Gurkhas who didn't want to go off yeah, to yeah. war and join the Gurkhas. Yeah, yeah. That they were all absolutely mad for yeah, it. Because yeah. like any eighty, you know, like lots of eighteen-year-olds, which is why there's wars in the first place. They want excitement and they want to go off to war and they think they're immortal. How many? How many? So forty battalions. I mean, we're talking. Well, how many men is that? Because because uh, battalions sort of seven, eight hundred men, isn't it? Yeah, battalions eight hundred forty-five, isn't it? Is yeah. the kind of standard. So yeah, you're looking at about thirty-five thousand, aren't you? I would so say. With replace- so with replacements, so with replacements, at least double, double, triple that maybe. So like, kind of hundred, hundred thousand plus. Cheapers, and surely so. Yeah. And then you're probably looking at one in three as a casualty, not killed, but like wounded and killed. Kind of one in three yeah. is the second yeah. is the second yeah, world war infantry. ratio. Yeah, because they're infantry. Because they're uh, although although uh, Stu, yeah. Stu Taylor is he's a sapper. So so they have that. They also have their um, ancillary arms as well, don't they? So you get people who are Gurkha sappers. And, yeah, they do. And, and and the way the way a normal the way a, a, a normal British um, uh, 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 brigade. D- yeah, d- I'm pretty sure that most most Gurkhas were. 
Yeah, there were definitely Gurkha engineers, but there were. I think most Gurkhas were infantrymen. There were rifles. That's so like a, more than a hundred thousand. Yeah. I mean, that that's got that's. Got, I don't know what the population of Nepal would have been at the time. So that's got to be basically every other bloke, isn't it? I mean, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, basically. God, basically amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And I remember when I was um, when I was first in my book, my my second book I ever did was about the North Africa campaign, and um, I was really determined to kind of try and get some Gurkha voices. And there just, there just aren't any. I mean, it was just a nightmare. And then, um, so I got in touch with the sort of Gurkha trust, and um, welfare trust and stuff. And um, it was interesting because what, what we then did was um, they send out guys who, who distribute arms, as in ALMS, um, to, to Gurkhas every year. And they, they're usually retired Gurkha officers. And what they do is they go tramping up into the foothills of the Himalayas on foot and hand out arms and he said well look, the next guy that's going up there what i'll do is i'll get him to kind of talk to one or two of these guys and i said well can i give you a list of questions and can you kind of get it all down anyway he did oh what so i got these couple of couple of interviews of these gurkhas uh, and it was just fascinating i mean obviously it wasn't anything like as detailed as it would have been had i been sat down talking to Stuart Watson or something. 15 yeah, yeah, ago. but 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 it was it was it was a voice. Well, because, you know, and, and I got his because the point you make in your Burma in the introduction to your Burma book, um, which is coming out in audiobook format soon, um, uh, is that uh, you point out this week. You, you, in fact. This week, in fact, you point out that you know that that necessarily your account of that battle has a British perspective because they're the people who've you know come back written were necessarily literate have come back written their accounts. They've, they've been published. They've gone into they've gone into the sort of system. They've gone into the data stream, if you will, historical data stream. Whereas your Indian soldier, your Gurkha soldier, went home, won't have done that, won't have memorialised, and maybe maybe you know maybe they probably go home and sit around and talk about the old days in Nepal. But accessing that is basically really or virtually impossible, isn't it? Uh, getting your hands on those accounts is really yeah. really difficult. Yeah, no, it, it, it's really hard. It's really hard getting accounts of, of just Indian soldiers as well because they just don't. There's just there just isn't that legacy of the Second World War. It's just there's just there's never been a kind of um, really any effort at all in India to record any of these voices. And now it's getting too. Long. I mean, I remember talking to uh, to uh, um, an Indian soldier again for for the North Africa book and for the India book and it was um, for the Italy book. Uh, and it was just fascinating, you know. It really, really was um, how they recruited and why he did it and all the rest of it. But, but yeah, I mean, but it was, did they it, sort know, of have? I, I interviewed him in, in London because yeah. you know he'd emigrated to yeah. London in the nineteen fifties. But in a, in, but, a, in a way, they've sort of got bigger historical fish to fry with independence just after it. Um, uh, 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 you know, partition that, yeah. the whole thing. You kind of think, well, the Second World War, whatever. You know, it's it's not their 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 yeah, their yeah, founding ex- myth. Ex- their except. founding myth happens after, if you want, after hours. <laughs> yeah, sure, but but except that uh, from sort of Quetta all the way down to Ranji and wherever. I, I mean, there is this. You know, if you're in the Indian Army, the Indian Army is absolutely huge. It's a million yeah. strong, isn't it? You know, there is a, they absolutely know their history and they're, they're fascinated by it and they're rightly proud of the contribution to the Second World War. And so it is, on that level, it's odd that there hasn't been more effort to kind of record the voices of these people. It's, it's really interesting. Actually, one of the people we're, we're, we're due to be getting on is Annabel Venning, who wrote this book called To War With The Walkers. Yeah. And all her, her grandfather and five 
four other uncles and aunts were all involved in the war and all survived. Wow. But three of them, I think, were involved in the war in the Far East. And her grandfather was a Gurkha officer. And so she's very big on the Gurkha. So we should we should follow up on that. We should get her on. We definitely should. Get her talking about it. Okay. And and that'll be. And Stu could listen to that at uh, uh, NHS Nightingale. Um, uh, and and tell his other tell his Gurkha officers and pals to uh, uh, to listen to that. Well, anyway, well, uh, uh, the script says a, a belated welcome to Ways of Making You Talk. As ever, what James and I did there was we were given one tiny nugget, and uh, uh, and it's twelve minute it's twelve minutes later. Anyway, um, it's taken us a year, but we've finally got all our comms working. Thanks to everyone who's got in touch. Lots of uh, you have been emailing us, even more of you tweeting us, and our hardy independent company join us daily to debate the key question of the day on our Patreon site. And that's been fantastic fun uh, the last few days. I mean, I... I has been good I, 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 has I'm been trying good to uh, emulate the great chefs, and I just sit back and let it simmer. I occasionally put a little bit of season, a little bit of seasoning in, but everyone's bringing their own ingredients, yeah. and it's simmering beautiful, beautifully. It's, um, I've been getting stuck in. Yeah, so, some, yeah. Someone said something absolutely outrageous the other day. Um, God, what did he say? About talking about about you know. What about the jet engine as if we bothered or something? It's like we had the best jet engines in the world by 1945. What are you talking about? Yeah, by by a lot, by a really long way. And and actually, people people go on and on and on about, about, um, what's his name? Um, God, he's completely gone out of my mind, Um, which just goes to show, prove the point, really. Um, Frank Wickle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And. Uh, um, but 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 Whittle, okay. So, so there's this whole school of thought that kind of that that goes something like this, you know, that he was this genius. Everyone ignored him. Um, he drove himself to kind of you know mental exhaustion. Uh, this lone voice of reason, all the rest of it, and he just wasn't really like that. I mean, he had this amazing invention. You know, when you when you when you when you've got this, and you and you you're someone like him who is a member of the RF anyway and you're kind of just sort of I've got an idea folks do you want to listen and you've you're the government and or the air ministry and you've got to make these decisions and you're being confronted with all sorts of stuff it's quite hard to kind of back something that fully you know it's, it's not well especially when you especially on, when you've also got loads of things that work and that you know that's my you've point. got that's you've got point. the greatest the I, I, greatest piston engine ever built the the, Mer, the yes. Merlin and it's and it's, it's succeeding yes. marks and types and the, and then the, its replacement, the Griffin, which is also like a absolutely shining piece of engineering. You, you, you maybe and 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 in a way, in a way, in a strange way, this sort of also epitomises the the thing that the the Allies the Allies basically win the Second World War with the refined weapons of the 1930s. You could, this is Richard Overy pitches this idea. The Allies take the weapons yeah. of the 1930s, refine them, perfect them, and win the war with that. The Germans try to invent the weapons of the 50s. <laughs> yes and whereas the British take the time over it but, so but if you see what I mean so, so it's, it's, it's a, yeah but Whittle is supported um, and he does do it but he's a massive control freak and he likes doing everything himself or as much as possibly can himself and the truth is is his first first jet engines they are amazing because they're a major leap forward but they're not that good uh, and also, when when jet engines really come into their own is when they become axial flow and axial flow is actually invented in the late 1920s by a guy called Professor A.E. Phillips, who is completely forgotten. He used to be at the RAE in, in Farnborough, and no one remembers him at all, which is a total travesty because he was an absolute genius. And what happens is is that Whittle then uh, Power Jets is his company, and he forms that using with with Rover, the car manufacturer. Yeah, and they just don't have the knowledge, the business know-how, the acumen to deliver 
the promise of the Whittle early engines. And so then de Havilland and, and particularly Rolls-Royce and others then come in and apply what they learn from Whittle to their own projects and with Axial Flow and all the rest of it. And out of that comes, you know, the, Ave, the Rolls-Royce Avon is the most famous of the Axial, earlier, uh, of Axial Flow early jet engines, turbine um, jet turbines. And they're absolutely brilliant. And the British don't hurry it because they don't need to hurry it because they're winning, as you, as Richard Overy says, with the with the refined versions of the uh, inventions of the 1930s. And there's this brilliant, absolutely brilliant doctorate written by I think she's called she's called Gifford. I can't remember her first name. She's an American, and she was commissioned by the Air League to do this mm. PhD, mm. investigating the development of jet te- jet technology, and it's absolutely brilliant and i'm afraid frank whittle doesn't come out of it that brilliant. <laughs> i mean he does he does i mean he comes out he, but, he, you know but, but, it, but i suppose what it is it is it's 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 a it's a stamping of the kind of old frank whittle much maligned but, but you know but, but well yes so many of the of the stories of uh innovation in the second world war just they end up turning into those terrible films with Robin Williams that he used to make, where he go we go around banging desks, going, "No one will listen to me. When will the establishment take what I have to say seriously?" I am the, and then right. finally someone would give him his give him his go, and he'd be proved right. Not unlike that Alan Turing film with Benedict Cucumber in it, you know, he, 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 you know, where he's he's going around going, "Why will no one listen to my genius ideas? Don't you know who I am? I'm Alan Turing." And it's like it wasn't like that. But of course, all. it wasn't fucking like that at all. You know, and you've. You know, and all the all the all the people that get forgotten in the in the telling of Bletchley Park in order to tell the story of Alan Turing. It's the same. It, I'm not, and that's not to say Turing's contribution isn't isn't. But Bill Tut, who cracks the Tunny code on a piece of paper, you know, doesn't use a com- yes. doesn't use a computer. Yes, yes, yes. I actually think I think historically, in terms of misleading the uh, misleading people, I think it's worse than U five seven one that film because at least U five seven one everyone knows it's a piece of shit. Whereas the point about the Alan Turing is actually applause. trying to go, you know... That's r- the sound of Chiswick clapping right there. Amazing, James. You're abs- I think you're absolutely because, because, right. Because I can't even remember what it's called now, but the, but the problem with the De- Benedict um, Benedict Cucumber one is is that it's trying to... It's setting itself up... As a history film. ...miscarriage of justice. The miscarriage of justice is that he is driven to commit suicide because he's gay. It's got... Okay, and that is a totally, totally separate issue to what his contribution was to code breaking in the second world war and the two should not be confused yeah because yeah. com- yeah. because basically Bletchley was allowed to get on with his life because it was too important because that's how they ma- that's how they ran Bletchley Park wasn't it is that is that they ex- accepted yeah. everyone was you know it was full of eccentric people and different different and on, on, different skills and, and, and different types yeah. and all that anyway uh you see, that was that. Then we've done it again. We have digressed. All I did was bring up the fact we've been debating stuff on the Patreon. Off you went, James. Off you went shredding, yeah, shredding sorry. Frank Whittle and then getting stuck into um, Hollywood representations of Alan Turing. Well, no, Does this okay, man no, have no, no mercy. I'm, I'm not shredding Frank Whittle, exactly, because <laughs> he was clearly a genius yeah. and he was clearly brilliant. And what he did was absolutely amazing. But it wasn't just, is, yeah, I, I just it think, wasn't just him. And there is this, there's this. It wasn't just him. Uh, uh, and, and, he brought it to a level, but he didn't have the wherewithal to take it onto that next level of mass production of high-quality products. That was bigger companies like Rolls-Royce and de Havilland that had the wherewithal to do that. And he, he is to be lauded and fated and remembered and all the rest of it for his original contribution. But this whole idea that, you know, he was up against a brick wall of kind of people who, of, of sort of, 
desk wallers who were, you know, well, it's not unlike to accept genius or not, that that is a myth. That but needs it's not unlike Barnes Wallace, the way Barnes Wallace is depicted in the Dan Busters film, where he's going around banging desks saying, "Will no one listen to my brilliant ideas?" He was basically, "You get on with it and see what you can come up with." And he was funded really well. Yeah, he was. You know, that, yes. that, that's how they ran it. And I, I mean, it's a thing we we've talked about talking about that we need to talk about. Charles Portal backs well, it. Well, he's technocrat. Charles Portal backs it. He's the Ted Med. Exactly. We need to talk about at some point. We need to talk about the technocratic aspect of the Second World War. And this is a, this is a this yes. is a beautiful example of how. You have the you have the story of the of the of the lone inventor. I mean, it's like the Reginald Mitchell story, which you know. Again, we need these heroic inventors. Whereas Mitchell Mitchell is a heroic little inventor, but he's a project manager, and it's other people who work on the Spitfire with him, and he leads it. Then, of course, he Beverly Shane. And then, well, well, then of course he dies, and then it's handed over. And and you know, Supermarine, who are a speedboat, who are a speed plane company, belong to Vickers. You know, they belong to the military industrial complex <laughs> yes. of the 1930s. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually the, that's why the Spitfires are success is because they deliver something that can be that, that can be technocratically rolled out and then an airframe that will uh, uh, undergo um, uh, multiple updates and ad- adaptations that end up twice as powerful and twice as heavy payload at the end of the war you know uh, uh, and it's the technocrats as much the inventors are important and we it's it's because we need this narrative isn't it so often that there's a there's a lone yeah. guy banging yeah. a desk going why will you buggers not listen to me and actually they usually are listening to him and they're going ah problem is Whittle's thing can't be mass produced so what are we going to do you know uh, because he's such a control yeah, freak yeah but being a stand-up comic i don't know anything but about talking of technocrats though, t- t- talking of technocrats i mean i wish i just wish a beaverbrook and an oliver littleton would be you know well, zoom no, straight into save, the government now. save it it's gold save it we're gonna we're gonna do them next time um the te- technocrats okay save that technocrats save next time. that Fine. gold we, we we've had lots of debating points dan we've got to get back yes, on track. dan suggested we ask what the brits were better at than the yanks in the final year of the war um that and that that went oh yeah that was fun like that that like was that was like um one of those yorkshire puddings at work rather than the little yes. flat one yeah, flat yeah, ones yeah. i normally make they go and fill the oven uh roger got in touch and suggested we seek the best engineering feat of the conflict two crackers and we got a really fantastic res- response yeah, and we really loved all the suggestions of engineering initiatives. So Andy Butler suggested the U-boat pens at Laurent. Well, yeah, can't argue that. They're very impressive constructions. But he hasn't been to the Valentin plant in Brevin. Uh, are are we talking cool. Nazi megastructures here, James? <laughs> oh, well, we might be. <laughs> it's a structure. It's Nazi, and it's certainly mega. Um <laughs> Callum Nicholson said the bouncing bomb. Yeah, that's pretty Loads of you said either the Mulberry Harbour or Bailey Bridges. And I think, you know, I mean, again, one of the things we try to do, try to talk about is the the sort of the things that are commonplace. And the Bailey Bridge, the Bailey Bridge is a genius piece of regular engineering around around which which everything is pitched. You know, when when you get into the debates about which tank, which tank's better, you know, you can't drive a Tiger over a Bailey Bridge. Um, <laughs> simple as that, and the Germans. Well, unless it's bigger than a class four. Yeah, and the Germans don't have anything like a Bailey Bridge anyway. Um, Andrew Aitchison gave no. us a detailed response. If we're talking combat engineering, yes, absolutely. Here we go, and it's the. It, we um, are. If we're talking combat engineering, then the twelve hundred foot Bailey Bridge over the Sangro River in Italy. Yeah, absolutely. Or the longer. I mean, that is insanely long. The ambition of that. I mean, that's. 
just nuts. All the lo- what's that? That's four hundred foot. Yeah, the longest uh, 1,200 feet. Four hundred yards, yards. Yeah, four hundred yeah, yards. yards. So you know, just shy of four hundred meters. Three three hundred eighty meters something. Or the longest pontoon bailey over the Chinduin in Burma. It's very difficult to express how important a rapid build equipment bridges for modern military forces the guys that go on about tanks and machine guns often ignore the less sexy but vital items yes have you do you ever see that account on twitter called at think defense have you seen that he's like no. a, he's a clearly some no, defense inside who wants to debate stuff current stuff but he's what's he called at, at what? think defense and at think defense is basically okay. obsessed with bridges and if you um, if you go on if you go on his account and you say oh go on show us your favourite bridge he, he descends into pictures, pictures of bridges and Avery's with bridges on and and all that sort of stuff fantastic um, yeah so yes I think I mean I think the ba- probably the Bailey Bridge because because after all the, the the American Mulberry goes wrong in the storm and they end up just driving LCTs right um sorry LSTs right up onto the beach don't they and unloading a high tide and there's yeah. a study that shows that they're delivering uh, material just as quickly as the Bailey, uh, as the Mulberry itself. Um, yeah, but only because they've got very, very deep beaches. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it swing, swings they've around. Got very yeah, deep yeah, beaches. Yeah, yeah, swings around. So, so if they'd been at the, if they'd been on the western side, they wouldn't have been able to do that. We wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, because yeah. you wouldn't have had a long enough low tide to be yeah. able to do yeah, that. Yeah, That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's it's an it's a having a very very deep beach is a complete bummer when you're attacking on de- on day one, but thereafter it then becomes a massive advantage i mean utah beach is is where the most is unloaded because it's it's freaking enormous it goes on forever uh and and there's lots well, of courses that run off it and it's you haven't got qu- to get up any bluffs and it's at the quiet end of the lodgement if we're honest uh, yeah yeah particularly once 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 a once, once there, things yeah, are yeah, well, 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 yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. there's no, there's no yeah. going on there yeah yeah, yeah. But yeah, but those bridges. I mean, crikey, it's amazing. I remember. I do remember going with a, um, a whole bunch of the British Army on a on a battlefield study, and we were doing 1940, and we were standing uh, at the River Meuse um, at uh, at Dinant, uh, which is where you know Rommel's Seventh Panzer Division gets across, and um, we were looking at the river there, and it was just saying, you know, because they went over on little ferries and stuff. And they were saying, well, how would you how would you do this now? And they just said there is absolutely, you know, it's, it's wide, but it's not that wide. It's maybe you know, 80 to 100 metres wide, something like that. And um, there was just there's absolutely no way we could bridge us now. It's absolutely not a chance in hell that we could bridge us. Well, don't, don't have a kit. Don't have a kit. Don't have the wherewithal. Anyway, Nick Aston came up with a cracker. He said, how about being able to build a Wellington bomber at Broughton in less than 24 hours? Yep, that yep. was pretty good. Yep. And Paul Bennett said, liberty ships by a country mile. Revolutionary design principles meant they could turn one out in just 42 days. Yep. Just stop and think about that for a moment. That's six weeks to build a fully operational ocean-going 14,000 tonne, 135 metre a long ship with multiple variants from tanker to collier to transport included the increased use of female labour to maintain production as traditional shipyard workers were conscripted and many lasted well beyond five years life expectancy they started with oh and they made 2,700 tonne of them I would I would agree with that I think I think the Liberty ship is is absolutely incredible designed of course by Cyril Thompson who was only 34 at the time from Sunderland in northeast England he was part of the British Shipbuilding Commission that went over to the States in 1940 and everyone one said they went around all the shipyards and of course because war was building uh, was was growing and, and Roosevelt was part of his rearmament drive all the shipyards in America were busy so they said look we'd love to help you but we just simply can't then Henry Kaiser who's this absolute amazing firebrand who's built the Hoover Dam and built lots of roads and everything just goes shipyards how hard can it be um uh, I'm, up, I'm up for that 
and he and he finds a site at um, Richmond, which is just north of San Francisco, and another one, Portland in Maine, not Portland, Oregon, but Portland, Maine. And he goes, okay, I'll build two shipyards, and he builds two shipyards literally in three months. Technocrats. Point of Liberty ship. Yep. Liberty ship was was um, designed to be built in 250 days originally. They then get it down to 125 days. Then they get it to 75. Then they get it to 50. Finally, on the 12th of November, 1942, the Robert E. Perry is launched after four days, 16 hours and 26 minutes. God, so, because 42 days, which is the, the figure he came up with originally, that's basically so how, that's the that's how long, that's, that's, that's the how, But that's how long we've been in lockdown. I haven't built anything like a ship in that time. <laughs> I haven't been that productive. You built a Sherman Firefly. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, so, uh, that is 37... 940,000, 37,940,000 tons of shipping. 14,000. That's just insane. It's unbelievable. 14,000 tons. Yeah, times 2,710. That's basically 38 million tons of shipping. Yeah, that's why we won. What an audience. That's why we won. That's why we won. Yeah, what an audience we get for this podcast. Um, So we are going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more of this. I I bet we're going to go off subject. Uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. There are more digressions in that than <laughs> I can't think of a thing where they digress. I mean, yeah, but it was really good fun. broken the mould on really digression and now I'm digressing. Dear God, dear God, will it never end. Okay, really? well, we've got... No, it's good fun. We've got, we've got three treats for you this week on Thursday. We've got a special podcast with Guy Walters, all about hunting Nazis, or, or as he says, not hunting Nazis. Guy is in brilliant form and you don't want to miss that. We, we, uh, uh, we recorded that last week and... Um, it's fascinating, and um, uh, some things where you go, "What? That can't be the case." And th- th- yeah. that, it turns out they are. Um, they're non. Imagine having a guy sharing a bottle of wine with Eric Priebkevo. I mean, that is just must have been one of the most surreal experiences it's of his life. All of it, all of it, surreal though. I mean, the 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 stuff about the stuff about the phone book. I won't I won't go any further than that. But the stuff about the phone. Yeah, book. but he was really good on all that, wasn't he? It was yeah, it's brilliant, fascinating. really fascinating. In fact, and yet yet again, one of those conversations where we could have done twice as much and not covered. Um, half as much as we wanted to. Okay, um, then, uh, so uh, that's this Thursday. Then on Thursday evening, of course, this, that evening, we're live streaming again, 8.30. Maybe, in fact, you'll have listened to Guy and have some questions to bung into the pot, having heard what Guy said. Um, so at 8.30, a live stream. We had more than 400 of you, of you last week, um, and it was a hoot. Um, we managed to answer 20 of your questions live on air. Um, we're back at the same time this Thursday. And my reading of Dennis Barnum's sensational book about being a Spitfire pilot in Malta continues this week. It's a lost masterpiece, I think. Don't miss it. Um, it reaches its sort of extraordinary climax um, in, a, in three or four episodes' time. It's, it's, in a, it's in a staggering book. And we're now scratching our heads and going through the colossal pile of out-of-print Second World War memoirs to figure out what to do next. Um, right, it's time for your questions now. Gents, I'm interested to learn more about the German raid on Bari that resulted in the mustard gas shells being hit on the Allied ship and resulted casualties. I hadn't heard about this until recently and wondered why. I gather it was covered up at the time. What? what? I don't know about this. Mustard gas, shell, mustard gas yes. shells on an Allied ship? What? What? <laughs> We're the good guys. Yes. So, you know, Paul Cantwell is quite right to bring this up. Um, so uh, this is early December 1943. And uh, we have, let's face it, I think we have to put our hands in the air and say we got a little bit cocksure and felt that the Luftwaffe didn't really have it in it to deliver a half-decent raid. But over 100 Junkers 88s attack 
attack Bari Harbour. The original plan, Catherine, what Catherine really wants is, is for them to attack Foggia, which has just been captured at the uh, end of October, I think it was. And that was the whole point of that was the number one objective for going into Italy in the first place was to get those airfields so that you could continue tightening the noose around Nazi Germany with a strategic air force, which becomes the 15th Air Force, which is formed up. And they have the priority on build up as well, which is one of the reasons why um, 5th and 8th Army struggle a little bit in Italy, because the priority is going to the air forces. Anyway, Catherine originally wants to go to Foggia, he they they just von Richthofen, who is is the the, the two figure corps commander in the area, doesn't feel they have quite the resources out, but suggests this attack on Bari because Bari is a is a big important port for for the uh, for the Allies, and he feels that if he can attack that, there's loads of there's loads of um, uh, merchant ships in delivering material, and he think if they can hammer that, that could slow up the Allied advance, and they actually think I think it is twenty seven ships, what? one of the ships. Yes, 27 ships are sunk. It's a good day for the Luftwaffe. Um, it's an amazing day for the Luftwaffe. Um, and, and, you know, egg and, and faces um, um, have an alignment uh, on that one. One of the ships contains mustard gas shells, which there is absolutely no intention to use them. But there is a rumour that the Germans are going to use um, chemical weapons. So they've got them there just in case. And unfortunately, what happens is there's lots of oil in the water and the oil and the mustard gas mix. And when the casualties are all being hauled, picked up and all the rest of it and taken, it's burns victims and stuff that get the priority. Whereas they just think people covered in oil, that's not really much of a problem. But of course, they're not covered in oil. They're actually covered in oil and mustard gas. And the mustard gas brings them all out. And there's something like 630 um, uh, survivors who get stricken with this. But it does happen. I think it's like the 3rd of December, 2nd December, 3rd of December, 1943. I've, I, 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 I'll put my hand up. I confess I've, I've, I've looked it up on Wikipedia. Got to start somewhere. 2nd of December, 1943. 105 okay. Junkers 88s. Incredible. And, and after World War II, it goes on to talk about this. Blah, 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 blah. After World War II, these samples, so tissue samples from autopsied, autopsied victims at Bari, after World War II, these samples would result in the develop of an early form of chemotherapy based on mustard. No way. Mustine. No. So how many people are killed in that then? Because I don't know that. A thousand military and merchant marine personnel killed. A, a, thousand, a, thousand, killed, yeah. a thousand civilians killed. One aircraft destroyed. Yeah, so that's yeah. a really good day for the Luftwaffe. That's so Petraeus is hit. And that's that's our old friend Hyo Herman. Um, uh, yeah. Um, who, who hits an ammunition ship and blows up Petraeus Harbour. It's just one of those amazing hits that just causes far more damage than it should have done. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's 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 the it's the worst strike ever on an Allied port in the Second World War, apart from Pearl Harbor, pretty much. So it's a Liberty ship, the jo- that we were just talking about. It's a Liberty ship. The John Harvey had been carrying a secret cargo of two thousand. Yes, that's the one that's got the gas bombs. But so it's a it's a it's a big old thing, and it and it absolutely does set them back because when you, you know. One of the reasons why the Allies are so successful in the second half of the war is because they've won the Battle of the Atlantic, which means they can plan properly because they know what shipping is coming in. The moment you 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 lose some of that shipping, if you lose sort of fifteen twenty percent, it just absolutely screws everything because your whole timetables get storm in the storm in Normandy build up screws the the, the the storm in Normandy. If you want to totally. if you want to explain yep. Goodwood, <coughs> storm in Normandy is your explanation. You know why have you ended up doing a thing like that? Where you're, you're sending yep. out, you've got all these tanks, but no infantry, and you're running out of ammo. You know, anyway. Uh, gosh, that is fascinating. I did not know about that, and I will have to find some. Has anyone written a book about it? I expect there's a like. I bet. Well, um, um, 
Overy mentions it in his Bomber right. War. Book. I expect there's some sort of quite sensational cover-up books about that as well, because it was it was absolutely totally hushed up. Records destroyed the whole thing. So, uh, gosh. Brilliant. Well, I remember studying it when I was doing my Italy book, uh, and although it was before the, um, the the my timetable was kind of I think May to May to May, so May forty four to May forty five, and, and obviously that happens beforehand. But it was you know the repercussions of that were still being felt in that, and I, I remember reading about it then. Amazing, yeah. One of those ones that's slightly brushed under the carpet, to put it mildly. Okay. Um, Matthew Hopkins asks, Hi, Alan James. Love the podcast. Always gives me something to look forward to when I listen on long days in the tractor. Hello, Matthew and your tractor. My great-grandfather, <laughs> during the war, was a farm worker on the water estate at Tisbury for John Francis Arundel. I know it well. Arundel, the last Baron of Arundel. He was a captain in the Wiltshire Regiment, was captured in France in 1940, was in Colditz, but he got TB in 1944 and was repatriated back to England, died in September 44 in Chester. My question for you is, did this happen very often, or was this the only time it happened during the war? Well, first of all, Tisbury is just uh, hopping a skip away from where I am at the moment. I know Wardle very well. Uh, and old Wardle Castle is a, is an old ruined, it was ruined in the in the civil English Civil War. Um, and when I was a nipper, we used to we used to go and um, go to the local pubs in Tisbury, get a bit wrecked, and then go and jump over the walls and spook each other. Really? Uh, by climbing around the castle in the middle of the night. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic, yeah. So I know, I know, I know. Wardle, and now, now there's new Wardle Castle, which is now kind of you know luxury apartments and flats and stuff. It's a really beautiful, beautiful part of the part of the world. And um, anyway, so um, I don't know too much detail about this, but I do know it happened not infrequently. It, yeah. You know, it absolutely did happen. Yeah. Um, and and it cut both ways as well. There were were, were prisoner exchanges, and prisoner exchanges have been going on. You know since the year dot haven't they i mean yeah it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's an ancient thing yeah um and, and the second world war wasn't any exception i mean you kind of sort of think well how does that happen well i suppose what it happens is is you just get put on a train and you've got special passes and off you go yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 i don't i don't think you have to necessarily get get lisbon and um switzerland involved but it, i expect him being the baron of last baron of arundel um you know there's, there's a little bit of string pulling here he's getting the treatment that you know uh uh your average uh, squad he might not. Now, Nick Rogers asks, did the Allies have a plan for what would happen next, assuming Market Garden was successful? And the answer is yes. Operation Gatwick was uh, mm. Monty's overarching scheme uh, for what he would do next. And Gatwick, one, once um, once it goes wrong, Market Garden, he basically modifies Gatwick and it's basically what they end up doing with the vessel and all that. Is that the... the, the, the there was there definitely wasn't there was a plan for a, a left flanking um breakout round to rotterdam originally um uh, and building up it building up in the salient and then breaking out and they yep. they adapt gatwick and and use uh nyamagan as the top of, of the new gatwick that then so you clear the reichswald and then you clear the set yourself up for taking vessel so there was there, there very much definitely was a scheme and a plan and and in fact it's the thing that Montgomery then adapts and that turns into the rest of Second Army Group's war, actually. Um, so yep. so 90 percent successful, <laughs> which is the thing that's always that he's beaten up with. <laughs> yeah. And then, then he ad and he adapts to the 90 percent successful uh, outcome of Market Garden. And so so they de they very definitely did. And I was I often think we're. When people say, oh, you know, we should have cleared the Antwerp, we should have cleared the Scheldt. If, if you'd got to Arnhem and you'd been breaking out left, you'd have, you wouldn't have needed, you'd have, you'd have encircled Antwerp and the Scheldt properly, wouldn't you? You'd have probably taken yep. Rotterdam. So your 
Antwerp's less important to you. Again, Antwerp's important if Market Garden fails. But if Market Garden succeeds, Antwerp's less important. Clearing Antwerp as a harbour is less of a less of priority. Would, would you not say? Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, we, we, we've said it before. In the circumstances, in the in, in, at the moment, with the uh, US, uh, with the, the Allied Airborne Army, it's got to be worth the punt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And well, it was very nearly successful. Worked. Yeah, yeah, it very <laughs> nearly, nearly worked. Very, very, very nearly. Very, Only very failed nearly. by ten percent. Well, that's it for t- that's. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Um, uh, um, uh, we're God. That's going to set them off. We're back with Guy Walters on Thursday, who will be telling us all about hunting evil. Then we're live streaming at eight thirty p.m. UK time on Thursday night. Um, get your questions ready. We answered twenty in just over an hour, hour last week, which for us. Counts as extremely rapid fire. That really does. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mind telling you. I was, I was or... slightly running out of steam at the end there. I, I really was, and um, I know someone was a bit upset for my my paltry answer about about um, murder orders at the end of the Japanese war. But um, <laughs> that was because I was basically asleep at that point. Well, you were ninety percent successful last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was ninety percent successful. Ten percent wasn't. So what I needed some pervertin, obviously. <laughs> so um, details on Twitter or at patreon.com slash we have ways please do subscribe and rate us uh, wherever you get your podcasts there's more of Dennis Barnum every day follow us on Twitter at we have ways pod email us at we have ways podcast at gmail.com cheerio see you soon yeah cheerio <laughs> <laughs>